accomplish. And of course, keeping with their mission of just delivering positively charged music for everyone to enjoy, regardless of where you may be. So that is going to play us out. And of course, if you have a request for me at all, don't hesitate to send it to me, AsianWave101 at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts on today's news, including the issue of the in, of the film industry in China, of what's been going on, the state of this revenue share basis with foreign providers having to keep this whole limiting foreign films and also having to keep 50-50 market share between the two. If you have any thoughts on that, send it to me as well, AsianWave101 at gmail.com. So that will do it for this week's show. This has been Asian Wave 101 on CITR 101.9 FM, live in Vancouver from the UBC campus on unceded Musqueam territory. I'm your host, Steve Zhang. Thank you once again for joining me this afternoon, and I will see you all next week. Cry of silence to play us out. Peace.
afternoon you are tuned into CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver and this is the arts report <laughs> uh, CITR is broadcasting from unceded Muscoom territory in, out at UBC campus and today is July the 8th July the 8th yep. yes it is um, so today on the program uh, Andy is here Mikey is here how are you guys doing uh, super bit hot <laughs> sweaty uncomfortable <laughs> but not in here but not in here it's a nice place yeah. no one thing i found out is it's really muggy everywhere in the world except for this particular this studio yeah so <laughs> uh we've got a, a great show today um a vancouver artist hinda avery is going to be on the phone in just a few minutes um and she is a painter who is rewriting her family's history um, from the Holocaust, uh, and she's rewriting that through her paintings. Um, Andy, and you've got, um, well, you've got a book review for sure. Oh, yeah, that's right. And um, and that book is Popat's Number 4. Popat's Number 4 by Ethan Rilly. Uh, so we'll we'll hear about more about that soon. We also, you went to a show, but um, but we might not get into that so deeply. No. I'm not that comfortable with uh, fine art criticism anyways, but this is uh, especially hard for me, I think, so I might skip that. Okay, we'll skip that for sure, um, but uh, we'll, we'll look forward to that. And Mikey, you, um, you went to the premiere, uh, the, in, the advanced premiere yeah. of the Latin American Film Festival this week? Yeah, it was just a couple of movies, and I'm super excited to talk about them. I'm really excited to hear about that. Also, we have an essay from Nico um, Branham that we're going to listen to later. She is a student who just graduated from Templeton Secondary in Vancouver, and she just won a Writers Trust Fund award um, for her creative nonfiction essay and we're gonna listen to that later in the show um but for now we're gonna hear a little music by moon and um moon is from halifax this song is called pastoral song and we're gonna listen to it while we get uh see if we can get hinda avery on the phone here is moon
try and get through to Hinda Avery as soon as we can. But until then, the Hillary Weston Writers' Trust Student Nonfiction Writing Prize is awarded each year, along with a $2,500 purse. Um, this year's winner, Nico Branham, is a Vancouver local who recently graduated from Templeton Secondary School and has plans to go to film school in the fall. Um, here is her winning piece, read by Branham, um, the piece is called Outside the Window, A Billion Stars Are Moving Past Me at the Speed of Light.
It's just me, sitting here, staring at a computer monitor. The glow from the screen is lighting up my face. I wipe my hair off my forehead and chew on my bottom lip. Outside the window, a billion stars are moving past me at the speed of light. Cut to me ten weeks ago, getting kissed and coddled by high school crush Kaylee, while high school boyfriend Zach sits on the floor and watches. Kaylee brings me a glass of water, watches me drink it, I'm holding it with two hands. Tipsy and distracted, I slosh the water onto my sock. Cut to me, walking home with one of my own socks on and one of hers. She wears my wet sock home. I still have hers in my dresser drawer, right next to all my panties. It almost matches my other black socks, but not quite. Real life and the biopic of a real life are planets in different solar systems. Neighbors in the bigger scheme of things, but miles and planets and stars apart when you're stuck in one and trying to get into the other. Cut to me, two days ago, accomplishing things, directing physics student actor David. Cut to me in the same moment, thinking about his stubble on my cheek. Cut to me in the same moment, contemplating jeopardizing my professional career before I even have a professional career. Cut to me wishing he would whisper his Spanish accent down my throat. What I mean is, there's a gap that seems minute, but is actually mammoth, that separates real life from what life is like in the movies. Real life will never be as good as it could be if there were writers and directors and better lighting and great sound and everything was cut together just right. Here on the polluted, corrupted, boring planet of real life, the important moments just waste away while the all-too-terrible parts drag on and on, and it feels like everything is just a little bit under reaching its potential. And it's not that I want a perfect life. I just want a more thought-out plotline. I want to cut the part where potential best friend Levi's mom has cancer and decide that the scene where I hit rock bottom in a bloody high school bathroom doesn't need to be there. I want everything in my fridge to be a part of who I am as a character, and I want to be consistent in my attitudes thoughts, actions. I want someone who loves me writing the script of my life instead of just me, writing myself, playing myself, directing myself. I need someone else to take the reins and use every scene to move my story forward. Cut to me four months ago, lying on high school boyfriend Zach's bed with a ball of unbreathed air in my throat. Cut to me, tears running down my face so fast I can't believe he doesn't notice. And then he does, and he scoops me up into his arms, and I squirm like a pathetic invalid. Cut to me, being too big to be carried that way. Cut to Zach, putting me down. Cut to me, being put back down. If I had a team of writers assembling scenes of my life on little index cards, rearranging them until my story had a perfect arc, I know what they would change. My team of writers would send me on a series of escapades. I would stop thinking about loving people, stop thinking about screwing people, stop thinking about touching everyone who has problems, and instead, I would actually do those things. In real life, I'm afraid, and not only afraid, and not really afraid, but also stuck. I'm stuck doing the same things over and over, 
and I'm not moving my story forward quickly enough. In real life, I'm my only audience member, and I'm getting bored. In the movie of my life, I'm never bored. In the movie of my life, I have a bit more courage. I move away, try drugs, date girls, dress in drag, and act on all of my feelings. In the movie of my life, I'm the opposite of trapped. Cut to me on New Year's at best friend Mika's party, music thumping. I'm half lying, half sitting on the bed, and best friend of best friend Han is lying beside me. Zach is off drunk somewhere. I speak my first line. Han, I say. Yeah. What if I'm a lesbian? Han pauses. I don't know. That's fine, isn't it? I don't know. Maybe. Eventually, the fast life would come to a screeching stop when I decide to write my masterpiece movie. I would lay off drugs, sex, and coffee and put away all my boy clothes. I would dye my hair back to brown, wear crocheted blouses, and water all of my plants. Once the script was done, I would send it away, and I would become someone new. And I would keep becoming someone new after I accomplished new things. Cut to me, a week ago, not speaking, standing at the sink at work. 26-year-old co-worker Max enters. My internal monologue pushes ideas of his hand brushing my hair off my face, thoughts of his not caring if I'm misted with dishwater, it not mattering that he's gay. My external monologue is virtually non-existent. The movie of my life would be gritty, I think, and hazy and sexy and depraved, and it would have this kind of floaty feeling. The audience would have to feel connected to me, but I would keep them at arm's length, which would only make them more interested. My real life is not gritty, more like slippery, and it's not hazy or sexy, it's out of focus and clammy, and it's not depraved in an art school, sex-fueled, drug-fog kind of way. I'm living in ordinary, realistic life. Cut to me, yesterday after class, walking down the hall with prospective best friend Levi, tilt down to my hands, chewing each other raw, tilt back up to my eyes on his face. Internal monologue flatlines. We make plans for the future. Fun plans. Cool plans. New plans. In the movie version of my life, I screw every person I think about. I don't know the difference between wanting to be with someone and wanting to be friends with someone. In real life, I still can't see the difference. But I don't do anything about it. I admire someone. I like someone. I feel close to someone. I think I want to be theirs. But then I'm not theirs because I don't ask if they want me. I'm trapped by my own ideas and trapped by relationships. 
I'm trapping myself, though, because nobody's writing my life but me. This is my problem. I want less control, but more control. I want off. Off the ride, off the planet, off the path I'm on. But I won't make myself stop. Cut to me, three years ago, poised at the top of a cliff, my friends around, all urging me to just jump. Just try it. It won't be scary once I do it. It was scary, would have been scary, and will always be scary. My internal monologue won't shut up. My hand is poised above the button, ready to push it. I could launch myself into my movie life if I just had the courage to do it. Why wouldn't I press the button if I want it so bad? I want to be on the planet where I'm having fun, the one where I'm doing what I want, the one where I'm free. So why won't I just do it? Cut to me, tonight in bed, alone. No external monologue, internal one, dull. Making lists, making plans, grasping at straws, trying to find where my loyalties are, who's my ally, and who's my enemy? Who do I owe, and who do I want? This is where real life and biopic overlap. I won't push the button because I don't want those things. I don't want sex or drugs or escapades, I guess. I don't want to send myself into space, across stars and into new places. Real life isn't a movie. That's why we have movies. I am not the same me as the me who is the star of my movie life. And I don't know if I like that, but I know it's true. So I guess that's a start. Cut to me, 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 me. It's my movie after all. Cut to me five years from now, writing the same essay. For a different reason. Cut to me six years from now. Seven. Eight. Nine. Writing my story into screenplay after screenplay. Trapped writing about girls who are trapped. I never launched myself into space. Never hit the button. Never. Fade out. It's just me. Sitting here. Staring at a computer monitor. The glow from the screen is lighting up my face. I wipe my hair off my forehead and chew on my bottom lip. Outside the window, a billion stars are moving past me at the speed of light.
Welcome back to CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver. You are, of course, tuned in to the Arts Report. And Mikey Harker, you um, you went to go see a film festival. I did. Uh, I got, well, I went to see a sort of a preamble to a film festival in September. Uh, the Latin uh, American no, the Vancouver Latin American Film Festival is uh, September 3rd through 13th, I believe. Those and, are the dates. And so in advance of this, uh, they screened a couple of movies? Exactly, and sort of in conjunction with what's going on in Vancouver currently, which is, I believe it's called Latin American Week, uh, which culminates in uh, Carnival de Sol, which is july 11th through 12th so i think just with all of these things going on it was a good opportunity for them to show these movies that uh will uh, have uh or will be shown again during the festival carnival du sol now my spanish isn't what it once was but you i know believe what? mine was never there so <laughs> as far as i know it's the festival of sun i yeah i was gonna guess that much too. yeah yeah cool uh so what movies did you take in uh i I got to see um, the first one I saw was Lion's Heart, or again with real shoddy Spanish, Corazon de Leon. Beautiful. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, it's an Argentinian film from 2013 that was hugely successful in the box office there. Uh, and it was something else. It was a really cool movie. Uh, I sort of I got a chance to see the trailer for it, and I went in believing that it was going to be uh, some sort of silly romantic comedy about, you know, love that doesn't quite meet expectations but then saves itself in the end. And it turned out to have a lot more uh, stuff happening in the subtext. So essentially it's the story of this woman who falls in love with a guy that's four foot six inches tall. Mm -hmm. So he's like a midget. Uh, And that is sort of the uh, something that the movie deals with is the political correctness of all of these things and whether or not we verbally address these issues. There's all of these uh, conversations that go unsaid in front of this guy who is shorter than everyone else. Um, And yet he is like the perfect human being. He's like, he's a successful architect wildly rich uh he's a family guy uh he skydives and hang glides he's and at one point actually many points of the movie uh secondary characters say he's almost perfect and that's sort of the issue that is uh constantly in focus in this movie it's the almost that is sort of questionable and it raises the question of whether or not that almost is something that is an actual consideration or whether or not that should just be ignored. Hmm. What what genre would you say this movie was? Still romantic comedy, but then it takes a real sharp, dramatic turn um, for about 15 minutes. It's dealing with some like pretty heavy social issues um, about political correctness and difference and whatnot. And kind of the best movies do flirt that line between, yeah. you know, um, comedy and tragedy and, and drama. And, and yeah, like, and just pushing social boundaries and whatnot. So, I, I mean, it's like still functionally a romantic comedy uh, with all of the, I mean, the storyline is still there. Uh, I don't want to ruin what happens, but 
if you've seen any romantic comedy, you can probably imagine what ends up happening. Um, but the twists and turns that it takes are really compelling, and I really enjoyed it. Really cool. Yeah. yeah. And did you um, did it affect your heart? Did you feel that you came out of it with you know a good feeling? Uh, at the end? <laughs> yeah, sure, definitely. I mean, <laughs> should have taken a significant other. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I took my roommate. That was fun. She enjoyed it as well. Yeah, cool. Um, the second movie that I saw was Gonzalez, The False Prophet, uh, and it was completely different than the first. It was. It's from Mexico, from 2014, and it was. It's a well decorated film in terms of awards. It won the Gold Zenith at the Montreal World Film Festival and the Critics Award at the Durango Festival of New Mexican Cinema. And the actors themselves won uh, some awards. Uh, it is. It deals with another very interesting uh, subject, completely different. It's uh, dealing with um, some like a a piece of religion or a a cultural piece. Let's see. How am I going to say this? Something that is consistent amongst a variety of religions and that is tithing so if you're mm. familiar with what tithing is and now is that that's 10 percent of the church or yeah or that's essentially what happens that's yeah. sort of how it's uh depicted in the bible you're supposed to give a tenth of all your earning to the church mm. and this takes place in mexico city and the story centers around this guy who is financially struggling but lives essentially an ascetic life where he's sending all of his money home to his family doesn't have any real indulgences except for this big screen TV that he once bought, and now the credit card company is taking him to the bank for it. <laughs> uh, and uh, comically, all that he watches on this is uh, tele-evangelical programming. So what ends up happening is this guy who's down on his luck ends up working for this church who calls people, uh, or like in a call center, and encourages them to come to their service and pay their tithing um, with the assumption that if you give to God, then God gives back to you. And so uh, it's very, I mean, the film is critical of what's going on there. Is he tithing during that process? Like as uh, he's he, holding that job? <laughs> the one time that you see him tithe or pay his tithing is when he's sitting beside a love interest that mm. is also paying uh, all that she can to this organization. Interesting, though, because you say that he is sending money back to his family yeah. throughout the whole thing. So yeah. not a tithe to the church, but a tithe to... Yeah, I mean, you know. at, at no point does he really indulge himself in what he really wants. He's, I mean, the the narrative is one of discomfort. You feel mm. real bad for this guy who's like struggling to pay his rent and just being hounded by people to pay what he owes them. And um, so you feel bad for him and it like really, I mean, uh, it's a compelling subject matter to think that that is, that's the solution or that's what's told to be the solution to your problems, whether it be illness or financial problems, uh, in this religious organization, at least you are encouraged to give money to God and then God will either solve your problems or help you solve your problems. So it begs the question of whether or not that is the solution to something like that. And um, it also paints these people, whether it be the pastors or the 
telephone operators or the even even the people that go to the church it t- paints them in a fairly critical light so mm. be aware of that if you're going interesting and so the the first film was a romantic comedy what would you say this was <laughs> just i don't know gritty critical uh s- tragic drama <laughs> okay yeah yeah <laughs> Skeptical, maybe like a, very, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, cool. yeah. And um, do you wish that the movies were in opposite order? Like, do you? Wish yeah, I was pretty you... bummed uh, <laughs> coming out of that one. Um, I mean, it, I don't know. <laughs> so the the screenings were at the Cinematheque yes, um, downtown, um, and the film Latin American Film Festival or Vancouver's Latin American Film Festival is coming up soon. What was it like um, watching watching Latin American movies? Uh, and you know what? It's, it's a lot of fun. It's obvious that, um, I mean, they're still like dealing with the same stories that uh, like Hollywood or, I don't know, the film industries deal with around here, but uh, it, like the the way in which they express themselves is different. You know, that's, I mean, as somebody clearly from the outside of that community saw people speak so quickly and mm-hmm. so passionately, it's, it's like, it's really fun to try to keep up with them and listen to what they have to say. Yeah, cool to immerse yourself into a, a different culture through films and stuff. Absolutely. It's a different look into everything that's going on. Great. Well, thank you for telling us about the Vancouver Latin American Film Festival, uh, which takes place September 3rd through 13th. And you can get tickets, although this is way early, uh, at VLAFF.org. Awesome. Now, uh, let's see if we can't get Hinda Avery on the phone. We were uh, trying to get through earlier and it just wasn't working. So let's take a short musical break and see if we can find Hinda Avery. We'll be back in a minute. Living, feeling, kind 
Inda Avery is a Vancouver artist who uses humor to rewrite her family history. Her series, The Resisters, um, recasts some of the women in her family who were murdered by Nazis in the Second World War as freedom fighters living out a graphic novel-style resistance to Hitler and the Nazis. These works are currently on display at the Kolch Gallery off Commercial Drive, and um, Hinda Avery joins us over the phone. Hello, are you there? I'm here, yes. Thank you for taking the time with us. You're very welcome. Now, uh, you traveled to Poland and Germany to um, find out about your family history during the war. What did you discover? Well, I discovered nothing. Uh, there were no records, um, no certificates. Uh, the Nazis kept, in some cases, kept very detailed records of their prisoners. But in the case of my family, uh, no records were kept whatsoever, or if there were records, I um, couldn't uh, find them, and no one knew where they might be. So, no, nothing. I wasn't able to get any infor- any information whatsoever. And so, tell me about how you, you turned to painting. Well, while I was there, I visited, well, let me backtrack. While I was there, I happened to come, aco- come across some memorials. And when I say memorials, I'm referring to monuments, museums, and memorial sites, which I didn't expect it to see. Uh, for example, all the uh, former concentration camps have all been turned into museums. And there are many monuments scattered throughout Poland and Germany that memorialize the war. And uh, many of these um, memorials have the lists of names of people that were taken to concentration camps mm-hmm. and um, eventually um, gassed and uh, mur- murdered. So I realized that there, there, was, there were no memorials to my family, and I decided I wanted to memorialize them in some way. And I chose to use the only two photographs I have of my uh, family, and at first I used photographs. I I, um, I photographed the two photographs that I have, and I joined my mother and myself to, in this case, the two women that were murdered, my grandmother and my aunt. So my first, quote, memorials were, were photographs of the four of us, one was a very large banner. And uh, eventually I felt that I wanted to paint them or paint the four of us because I hadn't done any painting for many, many years during, my, um, during the years that I taught. And so the first paintings um, were of us 
as victims, the four of us as victims, in a, a concentration camp. And we were, we looked extremely vulnerable and, um, and absolutely hopeless. So the so-called memorial, which, was, which were originally photographs, have now become paintings, and in my mind, they were still a form of um, a form of a memorial. Now, these these first paintings, um, you you included yourself. Was this sort of a, a way to sort of get to know some of the the family? Exactly, it was a way for me to connect up with my deceased aunt and deceased grandmother. And needless to say, I, I never met them. My mother left Poland before the war broke out. Um, but um, with the exception of one relative, all those who remained in Poland were all um, were all murdered. Now, what was it like to paint yourself and, and your mother into those scenes? It just seemed like a very natural thing to do because I wanted to conjoin us with my aunt and grandmother. It um, it seemed very natural and it was my way of of connecting to them, of being in the same same space as, as they were and my way of trying to experience what they might have experienced. So it was a way of uh, a vicarious experience, and uh, I don't. I'm not sure if it worked or not. <laughs> <laughs> now, tell me about this series, um, Resistors, and and for those over the the radio, it's it's sort of sisters with with three R's and a Z, and and that formed into Resistors. What can you tell us about about this series? Well. First of all, I'll tell you about the name. The RE stands for resistance, and the sisters stand for sisters. And the triple R Z at the end of sisters, I, I borrowed that from the guerrilla girls who were a feminist rock group in the 70s. They, they were quite wonderful. And... Uh, I like the fact that they ended their name with Gorilla Girls, and so that's how the Re-Sisters ends, ends with the three R's and a Z. So Re-Sisters really means Resistance Sisters. And so these, this is a series of paintings that evolved from my first paintings, of us in as victims in a concentration camp, and uh, eventually, I, while the four women were still in a concentration camp, I decided rather than have them nude, or rather than ha- rather than have them in prison garb, which the first, and these were very small drawings, mm-hmm. by the way, I decided that I would put them in partisan uniforms. Uh, so that they wouldn't look so vulnerable and so submissive. 
And, however, though they were still in the concentration camp and though they were now in partisan uniforms, um, they were beginning to be resistance fighters. And eventually I, I didn't want them in a concentration camp anymore, and I decided to pick them up and take them out and put them in the battlefield. And in this case, I put them in the forest. Um, there were many uh, Jewish and Polish partisans hidden in the forest, and they would attack the Nazis from the forest. And so eventually, the next series was of the four of us in partisan uniforms in the forest. And uh, we have some uh, guns. In this case, uh, the partisans re got their guns and their uniforms from the Russians. So they were in the forest for a while. And uh, they were still very glum and very serious. And um, uh, I got and 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 gloomy. I used very cool colors and dark colors, and uh, uh, I got I got tired of 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 the forest setting, and I also got a little tired of just painting the four of us over and over again. And I decided I wanted to add more women, so I added more of the women in my family, those who were still alive, those who were deceased, and I added um, friends as well. So the paintings became filled with women, and um, they were in various settings. They were in camps training to be resistance fighters. They were um, uh, helicopter uh, pilots, um, they were in um, um, camouflage outfits, um, so they were beginning to evolve into uh, women who, who were caricatures and women who were wearing a little more color. And uh, so another series began, and this series was even more colorful. They were taking on more um, cartoony-type appearances. They started to have fun in their role as resistance fighters. You write in your, uh, in your description that, um, that well, the current series, you call them gunslinging folks having the time of their lives, and <laughs> it really comes across. <laughs> yes, yes. I uh, in one painting I put them back in Stashov, which was the small town that my mother was born and raised in, and uh, I had them in. I have them in camouflage um, garb, but their camouflage garb is very bright, very colorful, with all these wild um, patterns. Um, on them, and uh, I mean, there's no way that um, they wouldn't be missed in this town. <laughs> and so I had a lot of fun with that one. That's one of my favorite ones. Now, the the paintings that are currently up at the Colch, there's sort of um, 
an absurd revenge fantasy element um, attached to to it, and a black humor. Um, how how are people reacting to seeing um, the atrocities of the Second World War um, addressed in this in this absurd um, black humor? Well, I seem to have two reactions. One is um, the viewer understands what I'm doing and uh, really enjoys my paintings and um, seems to um, be on the same wavelength as I am. And others, and usually it is the case of um, older Jewish individuals who feel I'm being disrespectful to the subject. And um, I find that when I try to explain what it is that I'm doing, that I'm not being disrespectful to the women and that I'm not making World War II or the Nazis humorous, just the opposite, in fact. Um, but what it is is this crazy revenge fantasy that I'm having, that instead of us being victims, we're really being strong, um, strong, assertive individuals, just the opposite of being passive, just the opposite of being uh, submissive. And uh, we're out to, um, to uh, get the Nazis, but we're having a good time at, uh, at the same time. But um, it's a little hard for some older individuals to make that, that, that leap. Um, after all, I am portraying the subject in a, in a very different way, in a, in a way that um, the view, most viewers are not accustomed to um, viewing Holocaust subject matter in the way that I'm trying to portray it. Well, they're very cool pieces to see. They're um, up now at the Kolch Gallery until the end of the month. Um, just before we let you go, how has how working on this project um, changed your relationship to, or, or made you think about your relationship to these friends and families who you're painting and the, also the family members who you've um, only met through the paintings? Well, my relationship has changed radically. As I mentioned, my first first drawing paintings were very small, and gradually the women became bigger and bigger. And my current paintings of the Kulch, the women are larger than life-size. The paintings are very big. They're nine feet wide by six feet high. And so when I'm doing the paintings i'm i'm enjoying their i mean they're much bigger than me i'm i'm a very small uh older woman and um somewhat um scrawny <laughs> and these women are tough and big and tall and uh i enjoy their strength and their their crazy laughter so it's helped me get through, helped me get through this terrible, traumatic history that is mine. So in a way, it's, it's, a, it's a form of art therapy. 
but I have to, have to admit, once I decide on the composition, and once I decide on, um, or at least once the painting tells me what it wants me to do, then I'm totally concerned with the format, totally concerned with the shape, the color, the texture, um, you know, the composition. And so I go into a different mode altogether. But, um, yeah, I've, I've, I've liked turning my, my victims, my Rose, and by the way, Rosen is the name of my, my, fam- my mother's family name. I, I, I enjoy the fact that I turn these women into something um, uh, uh, pretty radical. <laughs> well, Hinda, thank you for taking the time to, to tell us about your pieces. Oh, well, you're very welcome. Well, it's great to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hinda Avery is a Vancouver painter, and her works can be seen now at the Colch Gallery. All right, and Andy, um, you are here to tell us about Pope Hats Number 4. That's right, Pope Hats Number 4. Um, and what can you tell us about Pope Hats Number 4? Yeah, um, Pope Hats Number 4 is, well, it's the fourth installment of Pope Hats, which is a comic series by a Canadian cartoonist named uh, Ethan Rilly. And the four Popat's issues are really the only comics work he has, aside from some shorts. Um, so the first three Popat's was basically a continuing story, a story that still isn't finished, focusing on a struggling uh, law clerk, you know, a grunt, basically, working in a large uh, law firm. But the fourth, uh, the fourth installment of the series is is an anthology. And anthologies are kind of... Uh, a weird thing in American comics. Um, in Japan and in the UK, anthologies are a big deal because they've found a way to release them weekly. Uh, they've never really caught on the same way in North America, except, I think, in in the format that's uh, shown here, which is the, the single artist anthology. One artist doing several stories. You know, your Dan Klaus's uh, Eight Ball, your Adrian Tomine and his Optic Nerve series. Um, so here, here uh, Ethan really's working in a in a kind of tradition, right? Uh, the tradition of the single artist anthology comic. Um, and um, and you've got them in front of you. There, well, you've got Popat's four in front of you. It's a really visually um, impressive piece. Yeah, this is the first one I think that he's done in color. I've only I only have um the previous issue which is done in a black and white basically. Uh but yeah, like all these stories are focused on you know, there's like a kind of painfulness to them. It's very sad in some ways, but also a, a formal playfulness. Uh one story I think in particular which is the uh, I don't want to spoil too much, but the stained glass story which is about a guy who installs windows. Uh, in this case, he's doing it for a church, and and his reaction to the um, to the piece, he he unleashes it into the world, and he's um, he feels almost immediately like a kind of regret. He's obsessed with these like these flaws he he thinks that are in the the piece, and it c- uh, accumulates in him just sneaking in at night and destroying destroying the piece and it's 
there's something in there I think about uh, an artist who's uh, who's created something who's at the who's reached the point where he's shown it to other people and he feels the need to to take it all back because some uh, deficiency he, he sees in in the artwork you know it's kind of crazy 